Welcome to the Lee Sloan Podcast. I believe that ideas and conversations have consequences, consequences that impact generations to come. Thanks for joining me today. Together, let's be brave enough to think, brave enough to feel, brave enough to change the world, one brave conversation at a time. Hi, I'm Lee Sloan, and I am thrilled and honored that you would join me on this first ever Brave Conversations podcast. I'm looking forward to a great journey this season. You know, the reason I started this podcast was because I felt like in culture and society, and even in my own life, there was just a lot of fear around some of these hot button topics that we have today. And I thought, you know what? I believe that people can actually have real conversations about this. We can be adults. It's actually what democracy is all about. And so I wanted to kind of start having these cultural conversations, not necessarily all political, but I want to just evoke a little bit of thought. And I feel like the more we can talk about things, the smarter we'll get and the better our society will become. So I I want to start by talking about today words. Um, Words are really the basic building blocks of a conversation, right? And so a lot of times people say, well, talk is cheap. And I get what they're saying. They're, they're looking for action. But, you know, to get to action, words have to happen. And so what I really believe is that talk is actually expensive in that talk actually moves people toward a way of thinking, a way of believing, and then ultimately a way of behaving. And so, you know, sometimes in our culture, we have so many words and so many people jabbering and so many people talking that we're tempted to just say, yada, 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 get to your point and let's move on, right? And some of you might be thinking Seinfeld right now. If you're of my generation and of the Seinfeld generation, you will understand what yada, yada means. If you don't, uh, that's fine. But I just want to take you back to the day that George Costanza is dating his new girlfriend. And this girlfriend just, she's great. I mean, he loves it at first. She just, instead of getting into all the nitty gritty of the details of a story that maybe, you know, typical women might go into way too much detail about something, she just says, oh, and this happened and this happened and yada, yada, yada. And she just kind of leaves it at that. Well, at first, George is is thrilled with this whole situation. He doesn't actually have to listen to every detail. But then, you know, she said something like, well, you know, my boyfriend was, my ex-boyfriend was over the other night, you know, and yada, yada, yada. I'm really tired the next day. And he's thinking, could, what in the world happened in that yada, yada moment? And he's thinking out loud. He's going, could she possibly yada, yada sex? Well, Turns out, yes, she could yada yada sex. And then it comes to find out she's also yada yada over shoplifting and just these, you know, tiny little details that sort of really kind of matter. So maybe he actually did need a few more words. Maybe yada yada wasn't exactly going to cut it anymore. It's in today's world that we feel that we've had enough of people's thoughts and opinions. I mean, on social media, we're privy to what our mere acquaintances have eaten for lunch and what they're planning and thinking and feeling on any given minute of the day. 
And on all these different news sources, we wonder if we're getting the real facts and all the facts, the whole story. It can be really hard to trust what anyone says anymore. And I think sometimes we might be just tempted to yada yada over the whole thing. But like it or not, the words we speak have power. Power to create meaning, even reality for the people who speak them and for the people who hear them. Words are the currency of this information age. Now we have new words that are created and used all the time. And some words tend to go by the wayside. I had to look up the top seven words that nobody uses anymore, according to EF.com, are these. Facetious, henceforth, ostentatious, morrow, crapulous, kerfuffle, and obsequious. So, when you're feeling ostentatious on the morrow, you can henceforth use these words, but be careful. You don't want to cause a kerfuffle on the internet because you might be perceived as facetious or, even worse, obsequious. Then you will feel perfectly crapulous, and we don't want that. So according to dictionary.com, more than 300 new words are added to our vocabulary every year. That's a lot to keep up with. See how woke you are by seeing if you know some of these words. Well, the first word is woke. And mom jeans. Mom jeans is actually a word now in the dictionary. Lumber sexual. Manspread. Intersectionality. And ghosting. I'll wait if you need to go and Google it. You can just pause right now if you're confused. But the words that we choose in any given culture point to our understanding and even our values. So to illustrate it, consider that the English language has just one measly word for snow. Now, I live here in Alaska. You would think I would have a better vocabulary when it comes to snow, but I don't. But guess what? There are 50 Eskimo words for snow because... Naturally, Eskimos have much more experience with snow, and since it's been so relevant to their lives for thousands of years, they can distinguish at least 50 different tiny nuances in snow. So their words reflect their understanding. In fact, their words help create their understanding. It works the same with color. For example, in the Greek and Russian languages, they have actually extra words to describe their colors. So they have one word for lighter blue and another word for darker blue. And not only do they have different words for light and dark blue, but when they did this, a study on some Russians, they also found that they could quickly distinguish and recall lighter blue from darker blue when they're asked to recall, for example, what someone wore. So their words gave them the power to recall. It gave them the cognitive memory to distinguish one thing from another. In other languages, they actually have fewer words for color. For example, some languages will blend blue as a shade of green. One tribal language actually 
just refers to shades and not colors. So they call them light or dark. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if a native Eskimo would describe snow in a much more accurate way than an average American could. So I wonder, how does this principle apply to our dying words and our words that are being created and used more often? So when was the last time you heard the word meekness in regular conversation? This is kind of an interesting word because I would think more often than not, you're going to hear it in the negative sense. But in the true sense of the word, meekness is a kind of strength of virtue that is both peaceful and humble, but it is a strength. A lot of times when we talk about someone who's meek, we think of this sort of mealy mouth, puny doormat type weakness, not a strength, not a virtue. And really, because we think that way, it says a lot about our culture. I wonder if our culture has inadvertently dethroned the virtues of quietness, peacefulness, and humility. So that's just one example of the way that our words give us a mirror into who we are as a culture. So consider a new word that I've listed that we've created very recently. Behold the birth of the manspread. Manspreading, in case you don't know, is the practice of men spreading their legs wide open in public spaces, taking up presumably much more room than necessary. Now, I'm not going to argue for the, the strengths or weaknesses of using this word, but like it or not, the advent of this word, with it comes a new collective consciousness about the way men should sit in public spaces. Just like the Eskimo would discern a new form of snow, we're now conditioned to look for acts of manspreading all around us. Suddenly, we begin to notice it. We begin to call it out and see it. We're also starting to look for mansplaining, which might be a little bit harder to detect than manspreading. So whether you like this or not, whether you agree with it or not, in our zeal to prevent sexism, our language reflects a more heightened scrutiny of men. I heard a really interesting Invisibilia podcast, and I love that show, and I learned about a tribal culture that has discovered and begun to practice an entirely new emotion. Yeah, it's crazy. A brand new emotion. And they called it Leggett. So they talk about the emotion and, and they try to describe it. It's really hard to describe because we don't really experience anything like this in our set of emotions. But I had this question, which came first, the emotion or the label for the emotion? And I wonder if we as Americans lack experience with this emotion simply because we haven't yet labeled it. One of the most intriguing TED Talks I've seen recently was Lyra Borodowski's talk about how language shapes the way that we think. And so she discusses the English words for the verb to break, like when you break your arm. And she contrasts it with the Spanish words to break. 
And a lot of times she, she talks about how Spanish speakers, you know, when we say in English, I broke my arm, they think that's kind of crazy because in Spanish you would say the arm broke itself. They would think, why would you break your arm on purpose? That doesn't make any sense. So in Spanish, when something is clearly an accident, people say the arm broke itself or the vase broke itself or whatever broke itself. But for some reason, we English speakers commonly assign blame in our use of the language. Just think about it. She broke this. And so we do it without even thinking. But it has fascinating implications when you go to like a courtroom setting. English speakers will be much more likely to remember something if they were an eyewitness to remember it and to assign blame to someone for the incident. Whereas Spanish speakers are much more likely to recognize the possibility that an actual accident occurred, that it was no one's fault. No wonder we're so soup happy in the U.S., right? By the nature of our very language itself, which we didn't even choose, we are much more likely to assign blame. But I wonder what else our language says about us as a culture. What other filters do we carry around with us that we're not even aware of? Conservative political commentator Michael Knowles contends that words have changed so much in modern days that we are actively redefining the world as we know it. So he contrasts what he, what he views as left-leaning language. For example, uh, what used to be known as illegal alien, now we call undocumented immigrant. You see, there's a softening there from what he describes as race discrimination, distinguishing one race from another, to affirmative action. From global warming, which is very specific, to climate change, which is much more broad and can can describe almost anything. He calls these such words euphemisms, which he defines as soft words selected to sugarcoat harsh realities. He puts forth the argument that the left has act- actively altered the entire concept of marriage even from its traditional man and woman um, meaning by just adding two little words, same sex, before the word marriage. So now, rather than having to fight an uphill battle of talking about whether marriage in its essence is between a man and a woman, now with these words same-sex marriage, we can just skip over that part and we can redefine it for changing times. Again, you can argue both ways. You can like it or not, but suddenly we have an entirely new concept of what marriage can now include. And he comes down hard, obviously, on the left because he's a conservative, saying that they twist words to suit their agenda. Interestingly, he uses words like twist and soft and harsh and sugarcoat. This is also very strong language. Um, But I get what he's saying. Even though I might nitpick his argument, I wholly agree that words have power. Words create and shift 
realities. They can deceive and they avert our attention from one thing to another. So he encourages everyone to use what he would call plain language to state exactly what they mean. And perhaps that was the appeal of a lot of Trump's rhetoric. Well, it might be nice if everyone played fair and used the 1950 Oxford Dictionary for word meanings. It might be a little bit easier. I had an Italian uncle who, he was a quadriplegic, but he was, he was very brilliant because he, he just read and read and he knew a lot of things. Um, but I remember he would argue extensively about the dictionary and how it was so infuriating to him that words were constantly being changed and the meaning of words were being changed. Even when people were using the words wrong, it would change the meaning of the word. And he would say, let's just stick to what is right. (laughs) And there's one way that's right. Well, I think he was right to be um, concerned about that because changing words changes culture. But the reality is we can't curb culture. We can't, especially in this information age, we can't think that things are not going to change and meanings of words are not going to change. In fact, instead of just trying to use plain language, I think we need to become more skilled and active at creating the language. And yes, we need to agree on the meanings of words. It is a war of the words. You know, and in times past, I might have sighed and said, well, let's just chalk it up to semantics. We both mean the same thing. But semantics is actually the study of meaning. It matters. Maybe that's why my uncle argued so vehemently for words. Dictionaries matter. Could the future of our culture be in the hands of Wikipedia? God help us all. Let's hope we're more proactive with our words than letting them just be served to us by the World Wide Web. Thousands of years ago, when books and writing became more and more widespread, the philosopher Aristotle was very concerned Because at that time, he was concerned that people would allow book learning and reading to replace the value of authentic face-to-face conversation. And he believed that conversation was the best crucible for human thought and that we would lose too much when we neglect having important conversations. Well, his fears might not have been fully realized but maybe we have lost something when we don't talk face-to-face with people. Because he or she who creates the language gets to create the rules. Whatever your politics, think about this. What gets talked about and written about and tweeted about gets heard. Good, bad, and ugly. So which words in your mind are erecting unnecessary cultural walls and which are tearing them down? Which words are persuasive and which words are really 
ineffective. If you're a church leader, you're an educator or a blogger, are the words that you're using really getting through? Are they working? Are you in control of your words? Or are you a victim of the words that you hear? Are your words working to point out truth or just soften a lie? Are there new terms or phrases that we need to create in order to bring clarity where there's now confusion? To me, it's kind of like a dance. We're given certain words by our culture, but then we get to use those words how we will or refuse to use the words that we don't want to use anymore. So we marry our words for better or worse. We eat our words till the death of the word do us part. So notice the words that you see or hear today. Do they make your blood boil or do they draw your attention? Could it be those trigger words for you that don't even mean the same thing to the person whose mouth they just came out of? All right, so now I want to introduce you to two of my friends, Chris and Liv. Now, we began a discussion in this private online group that we have called Brave Conversations, and we were discussing issues around race. And there ended up being this debate that had gone on in the Strand, and apparently, I didn't see exactly what happened, but it got so heated that Liv actually felt like she had to block Chris from her Facebook at one point, and he was upset, and so I said, let's just come to the table. Next Sunday, we're going to discuss this topic, and the hot button word that they were talking about and what, what really got Chris was this word privilege. So to start off, I want you to hear Chris's perspective. See, he's a white missionary kid who grew up in Hong Kong, China. And so when he hears the word privilege in reference to himself, he begins to feel more than a little bit misunderstood. So let's go to him and let's hear exactly what he has to say. So I was born in the USA in Colorado. And uh, when I was a teenager, young teenager, I family packed up and moved to Hong Kong as missionaries. Uh, When we got there, uh, dad and mom sat us down and said, we're here to serve the Chinese, so you're not American. You will learn their culture, you will learn their language, and you will basically identify with them. Went to a Chinese church. Um, I've been spat on numerous times by Chinese, been told mm-hmm. to get out of their country, been told uh, to, in Chinese we say, say guai lo, which means die white devil. Um, wow. I was beat up by about 10 guys when I was a teenager just because they didn't want me there because I was white. So for me, my story is I've experienced a lot of racism in the 20 plus years I've been there. Um, and so then I come back to America and all of a sudden the white man is the problem or as Liv said, the cisgendered white male. And I'm just like, I wasn't even here. I didn't do anything. I didn't enslave anybody. I, (laughs) you know, I went through my own experiences of being hated just because of the color of my skin 
why am I being attacked just because I'm a white male and I happen to be conservative in my beliefs? Um, I'm not married. And it's like, okay, then people start throwing out the word privilege. And I'm thinking, I didn't grow up with any privilege. I was on food stamps. Then we moved to Hong Kong. Our church split. We lost everything. Um, you know, I was beat up. I was spat on. I was told to get out numerous times. Um, so I look at it as just like, what, what privilege do I actually have just because I'm a white man? Now, from here, Chris goes on to talk about how he actually felt more Asian inside, even though he had white skin. And it was really hard for him to communicate that. So he never really felt as if he could fully fit in with Asians or white Americans. So what we're talking about is the difference between race and ethnicity. It, it can be different than what you look like. But people make assumptions based on what you look like, but that's not the whole picture of you. Oh yeah, exactly. Like yeah. for me. And yeah. so I get, I get kind of like a bit fired up when someone tells me that, oh, you're white and you're privileged. And I'm like, I, I, how, how did I, what did I do? Like, I didn't, I didn't choose okay. to be born no, this way. I was just born this way and I grew up. Right poor and on welfare and food stamps and moved to a foreign country. And yeah. it's like, what did I ever do wrong? Like I've never gotten a job word, based on my the, color. Do you think the word privilege, I know it has that connotation, but do you think it always implies a negative thing? I mean, does it have to? I, it's not that I think it, 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 qualifies as a negative i mean i know there are people um you know growing up maybe the upper class or upper middle class um and they've done well because they have money um i don't think that it's because they're white that they have privilege i mean you have plenty of examples of minorities such as condoleezza rice colin powell who spoke mm -hmm. at our school um you know, who, who have, have come up and may have had more opportunity or they worked hard to get where yeah. they are, you know? So, so let's, let's give it, let's give another example, a little more innocuous example. Do you think people who are beautiful have privilege? Um, to be honest, um, when I was in Hong Kong, I lost about 50 or 60 pounds and people treated me differently based on my looks. When I was fatter and obese, people treated me a certain way. When I wasn't a little bit more handsome down to about 180 pounds. Yeah. Do you ever feel like, um, that you, you have the temptation to write, like write off a whole race of people or, or even to, to see them as privileged and you not privileged. I mean, did you ever feel that way? Yeah. I mean, so you, you can understand the whole privilege talk then. No, I can understand. I, Oh no, I can definitely understand that. And I understand where, you know, the other side and those who feel that their race is not accepted or they don't have as much privilege. Um, 
I, I can get that completely, you know, because having yeah. been, been through what I've been through, you know, I have an understanding. Maybe other people have been through worse, but at the same time, I look at it and say, you know what? I mean, we should see people as individuals. Okay, now let's meet Liv, sharing her perspective on the meaning of privilege. Notice that as we begin to articulate and further crystallize the meaning of this very culturally loaded word, privilege, our understanding begins to deepen and common ground actually begins to unfold between these two. To basically paraphrase everything that he's been saying and like what I've been feeling about what he says is basically he feels like I have no privilege because I grew up on food stamps and EBT and in the ghetto. The fact that you can say that makes you say, or I'm sorry, not makes him say, but makes me see like, okay, you're saying that this way of life is beneath you, that you don't deserve to live it. But for other people, black people, brown people, this is all they know. That's why you have, you know, generations and generations, they call them welfare babies. You know, you get the baby and you get the cable in the baby's name and things like that. That's a way of life. That's all that most people know. I mean, I was fortunate and blessed enough that my parents never let me or my, my sister and my brothers know that way of life. But it's like the fact that he can say, oh, I, I live this way and I live this way. Like, that's your privilege showing because you feel like that way of life is beneath you. Like you don't deserve to live that life. So mm-hmm. that's how I, I see it. So, so do you see, do you feel like you have privilege? I do as a, as a, well, mm, yes and no. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't mind sharing this, but I feel like, I feel like in the, in, in, a, in colorism, I, I do have more privilege than a dark-skinned black woman. Absolutely. Because you're lighter? Yes. Um, and okay. there there are certain arenas where I, I will be more accepted than a dark-skinned person would or a dark-skinned woman. Um, so I can definitely admit that. But I feel like any privilege that I have with that kind of leaves the building um, on the fact that, you know, I am a, a gay black woman. So I feel like in that sense, that's why I said yes or no. Because I feel like one brings me privilege, but the other kind of snatches the privilege away. Which one? Which one does what? Um, I feel like definitely having um, lighter skin, um, and I would venture to say, you know, being able to articulate myself very well. Those things kind of give me a leg up in the world. Um, whereas it's like when these people meet me or they see me in person, they're like, you know, I'm, I'm a you know a masculine woman. I'm you know I'm gay. And that's just kind of snatches whatever privilege was mm. there. Okay. So, do you, uh, I know, have you heard of uh, Charlemagne de God? Yes, I have. Have you read his book, Black Privilege? I have not read his book. Okay, well, I read his book <laughs> and um, he, he contends that everyone has privilege. That you have a certain brand of Black privilege that and I have a certain brand of white privilege. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that? I definitely think that that is true. Um, okay. And to and to uh, to a certain extent, I I agree with Chris in that aspect. Is it's kind of like you growing up in China. You like I said in the comments, he basically grew up 
living like black people do in America every day of our lives. So it's kind of like in that instance, you know, like we're here on that level of privilege. Like, you know, he seems like a not, not, he doesn't seem like a suit and tie guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like in that instance, like a suit and tie white cisgendered male would have more privilege than, you know, not that you're the way you dress is bad, Chris. I'm just using it as an example. <laughs> like, I feel like a person in that regard would have more privilege than, you know, if you walked into an interview or something with like a John Deere hat and Dickies, you know? <laughs> yeah. so. Sure. Okay. So what if a person who was dressed like that walked into the hood, so to speak? <laughs> dress like Chris what? or dress like the example? Example that you gave. Um, would they have privilege? Would they cease? Would they have privilege in that air in that? They would have privilege, but it would serve them best to keep it to themselves. <laughs> um, so is that really privilege then? Does it really get them ahead? I think, I think that in that instance, no, but it's kind of, but that would ask more, like it brings up more questions before I could answer that one. What, sure. what, are you, what are you doing there? What are your intentions? <laughs> this is obviously not where you live, where you hang out, where you, you know, you congregate. So why are you here? And then we could so, level. Like if you're trying to, to gentrify this neighborhood, then yes, you're using your privilege. <laughs> so isn't it interesting that, that by, let's just, just by saying what you wear, where you walk into a situation, who, you know, when you walk into a, a situation that doesn't fit where, how you dress, let's say. Right it's the hood in a job interview <laughs> right. or it's the job or it's the job interview guy in the hood. Either right. way, it causes um, signals to go off in people's heads. They don't belong. Why are they here? You right. know, those types of things. Right. So would you say that's pretty much equal on. <laughs> Con- I, I, yes and no, because I just, I feel like our questioning stems from a place of trauma. You know, it's not like, it's not like, oh, let's get excited. There's a well-dressed white man in the neighborhood. He's a savior. It's like, no, the last time, you know, and I'm just using examples, but you know, sure, like, sure. oh, the last time a well-dressed white man came into my house, I never seen my real mother again, or I never but, seen right, my father again. Right. So, you know, I think our reaction, well, not our, but who live that yeah. life's reaction stems from some sort of trauma. And I think that Natasha talked about that last week, too. Yeah. So, so. Even though it stems from trauma, though, that guy could have every good intention in the world and still face discrimination from people, even though it was well-based. Right. Correct? And I think that in order to overcome that, there has to be a willingness on both parts. So you're saying it's really the abuse of privilege that causes people to be bad, not the privilege itself, right? When you say privilege, it's not a derogatory term. Right. But I... I think a lot of people use it that way. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I do. Like, I feel like if you saw a black person getting like beat up unjustly, you would totally jump in and defend them. Does that Mm -hmm. change the fact that as a white woman, you have privilege? No. So. But, but you would say though, in certain search, in certain circumstances, you as a black woman have privilege. In certain, Maybe not as many circumstances, but because of the majority is white. Yes. Maybe it's not as many circumstances, but in some cases you actually have, you can say things that maybe I couldn't. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So I think <laughs> we're getting on 
a little bit of the same page. I think you're understanding even Chris's background a little bit, maybe even where you guys might have felt like between a rock and the hard place where you don't fit in. I think maybe you can maybe relate a little bit. I mean, <laughs> I feel like if I knew Chris, like, before this conversation, like, we would be tight. Like, I feel like totally. I, would, I would take him to go get fried chicken. I would bring <laughs> him, like, cornbread. Like, I would introduce him to, like, the greatest things. But it's, like, at the same time, like, you are an ally. Yes, we get that. We understand that. And we appreciate you. But know your privilege. That's and, all. <laughs> and, you're, and you're admitting that you have some, too. Yes. So... In the same, so it's how we handle handle our privilege yes. that matters. Yes. Well, it's what I it's what you do when I go into a situation with all black people. It's how you treat me. Yes, absolutely. That's how you use your privilege, and absolutely. it's how I treat you when you go into an all white situation yes. because I have the privilege. Now you can see from this conversation that at first Chris is pretty defensive at the use of the word privilege. He's saying, "What did I do? Who's accusing me of something?" But when we started defining the word privilege further and even Liv was able to apply it to herself, the word sort of entered this demilitarized zone, if you will. So, you know, conversations like this that you've just heard, you know, at first it can make us fearful because maybe there's confusion that happens at the use of some of these trigger words. But it's only in the crucible of honest and open and vulnerable conversations that we can truly develop meanings of words that are not going to pit one group against the other, but are going to work to unite us. And so this conversation turned out really well. Um, I think Chris, you know, said, hey, I want to take you out to lunch, even though they live in two different states. So it turned out great. But, you know, in, in my opinion, this heightened understanding is worth, well worth, any discomfort we may experience. Now, this conversation was just an example of how just one brave conversation can little by little begin to transform our culture and cause a new understanding to happen. Whether you agree with what was discussed or not, you can have your own brave conversation. And I hope that you'll join in this movement by choosing to have some brave conversations of your own. Maybe your brave conversation isn't anything about politics. Maybe it's just about a workplace situation with your boss or with a coworker. Maybe it's something having to do with your spouse. Maybe you just need to have a really brave, open, and honest conversation. The way I define a brave conversation is me coming to the table with everything that I have, all of my power, all of my vulnerabilities, all of my concerns, and not holding anything back. And then also allowing the other person to come to the table with everything that they bring, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and being able to really hear them and understand them and to create meaning together. Even the meaning maybe that we disagree on, but that we can at least have a true and full understanding of each other. So I hope that you will join in some brave conversations. If you don't even know who to talk to, you can come talk to us by joining our private conversation group. I hope you'll stay tuned to this podcast. I want to continue to help challenge your thinking. I want to have some more conversations with some people. Um, I want to help you learn how to have a productive conversation. In the process, I'm going to be learning as well. We, you know, even when we're on social media and things, it feels like we're not talking to real people. And that can, that can be a real challenge because then we start to 
talk to them as if they're not real human beings. But every time you type something, you're talking to a human being and it's affecting and impacting them. So I just want you to remember that. And um, I hope you find this interesting. Leave me a review um, on this podcast, on iTunes, wherever you're listening. And I really, really appreciate you listening. Remember, go ahead and subscribe. And you can also look at the show notes. Check out the show notes on leesloan.com and I have the notes there. Anything we talk about, if there's any resources that we talk about, we'll list them there. Look forward to having another brave conversation. Let's change the world one conversation at a time.